I love Mother's Day. It's one of my favorite holidays, um, probably for selfish reasons. In truth, Mother's Day and my birthday are those days that I do whatever I want to do. When we go home from church today, I'm going to take a nap unashamedly, and I'm not even going to ask. I'm just going to be like, I'm leaving. See ya. <laughs> it's a beautiful day. Beautiful day. And if you have mothers, or if you're mother of young children, you understand what I mean. Like the nap. The nap is that coveted thing on a Sunday, and you're like, oh, let's take turns every other week or something when you have the young children. But on Mother's Day, it's all mine. <laughs> So I am so blessed with three beautiful children, and every Mother's Day, I am thankful, very, very thankful that God gave me the opportunity to be a mother. Michael, I don't have any um, monitors. I just have all. I can hear it out there. So you know me. I'm the monitor. Thank you. Yes. Fixed it. All right. So every year on Mother's Day, God tends to put something into my spirit early on that he wants me to speak, and he'll simply drop a thought into my heart, and then it, he begins to develop it over time. And because if you didn't know, God is very interested in mothers. Actually, when Jesus was on the cross about to die, bearing the weight of the world upon his shoulders, he was concerned for a mother, his mother. He made a point to make sure she was taken care of by someone he loved. Literally on the cross, bearing the weight of the world upon him. He looked at his mother, and he looked at John, whom the Bible says was the disciple that Jesus loved. And he gave him the job of taking care of his mother. God cares about mothers. And so in the most agonizing moments of his life, he placed value upon us. He placed value upon what we do. He placed value upon who we are as individuals. You know, your value as a woman, the world will want to tell you that it's wrapped up in how much you can do on a career level, how much, how high you go on the corporate ladder, how good you look on the outside. But God, he wasn't concerned with how good Mary looked or how high she climbed the corporate ladder. She was valuable because of who she was, because she was a mother. So ladies, you are so valuable, even if the only job that you do is stay home and take care of your children. Do not let the world tell you that that is not enough. Because it is. So Jesus says that if the only role that you have is that of a mother, it is a beautiful thing. I'm thankful for that. So God began to place this message in my spirit. And it is a message for mothers. But I have good news for you. If you're not a mother, if you're a man, Mother's Day may be a little <laughs> for you. <laughs> You're like, goody, I get to go to church and hear all about moms. So excited. But if you're a man, this message is for you too. If you're a woman with no children or if you're a woman with grown children, this message is for you too. And actually, this is a first for me. I am not even speaking about a woman on Mother's Day. I am speaking about a man. <laughs> so two men, in fact. One named Abraham and one named Isaac. When we go into the account of Abraham, we find a man to whom God has made many promises. We sang about it this morning, and I love that song because it's just so rich and filled with beautiful words of covenant. God of covenant, God of Abraham, you're the God of promises, faithful covenant. So many beautiful things in the story of Abraham. 
But Abraham had longed for God. He had searched for and found God. And Abraham, God had rewarded him by telling him to leave everything. This was his reward. He was told to leave everything he had ever known. Leave his family, leave his home, and go. Except God did not tell him where he was supposed to go. He just said, go. So let's open up with that passage, Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great and thou shalt be a blessing. How many of you want to be blessed? We all want to be blessed, right? And I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken unto him and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there builded he an altar unto the Lord who appeared unto him. And he removed from thence unto a mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, having Bethel on the west and Hay on the east. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed, going on still towards the south. So I'm going to be speaking today on Abram, whose name was changed to Abraham, and on Isaac. And let's pray. And I would ask that you would lift your hands and that you would pray with me because more than anything, I need God's anointing upon the words that I'm going to speak. So let's pray. Jesus, I pray that your hand would be upon us, God, that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you would open our spirits, Jesus, to receive your word. Lord, don't let it just go into our ears, but let it settle in our hearts. Help our hearts to be fertile ground, Lord, that your word can penetrate into, God, that your word can produce fruit in, I pray, that you would help us, God, to hear your word, that it would go deep inside of us, that you would anoint me, Lord, as I bring your word unto the people today, Jesus, that your hand would be on me in Jesus' name name, in Jesus' name. So in this account, one of the things that I find the most interesting about this passage is how God makes promises to Abraham, if he will obey. Say, if he will obey. Then once Abraham does what God says to him, God appears again to Abraham and gives him another promise. Unto thy seed will I give this land. That is often the way that God will work with his people. He never tells us the full story. He gives us a little part of his promise and a part of his command. And then he steps back and he watches to see what we'll do with what he's told us. Will we obey? If so, he has more blessings coming. He has more parts in the future. He has more parts to obey. But if we choose not to obey what he has spoken to us in that moment, we will go no further in God and never receive those things that he's spoken to us. I was just having a conversation with someone recently about this and how it's such a blessing that God doesn't give us his full plan for our life all at once, but that he takes us step by step. And once we do that, then he shows us a little bit more and we take another step towards God. And that's why around here, our goal is that everyone is moving forward in their relationship with God. You're not going to be the moment you walk in the doors and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. You're not going to be at the same level as somebody that has been serving God for 25 years. And that is okay. But the goal is that one step at a time, as God gives you a command, you see it and you step into it and you move forward in God. And as you do that, he's a God of, if you do, then I do. As he told Abraham, if you will do this, then I will do this. And once Abraham did that, then God gave him another command and said, okay, so you do this 
and then I'm going to do this. He gave him promises for every bit of repentance, or not repentance, for every bit of obedience that he did. So we see God giving Abram promises and waiting. You know, the same uh, concept of repentance. If we repent, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us. But it depends on our repentance. God can't be faithful and just to forgive us if we don't repent, if we don't come to him. If you ask, he will give you the gift of the Holy Ghost. But you have to ask and you have to want to receive it. If you tithe, then God says he will rebuke the devourer over your life and he'll bless you. But it's one of those things where he says, try me. If you do this, then I will do this. So we see God giving Abram promises and waiting. Then when Abraham did what God directed him, God gave him more promises. And he stepped into the next steps that he was to take. But God's promises are on God's timetable. So he is sovereign and knows the beginning from the ending. His timing is perfect. And so Abram obeyed. And then he waited. Anybody ever waited? <laughs> waited on something God had promised you. So I won't go into all the details of this time of waiting because God had a lot to say about Abram. It would be 25 years of waiting on a promise that God had given him. 25 years for a man and a woman who were already past their prime years of childbearing. 25 years of imperfections. They made some mistakes. Failure. Repentance. Renewal. It was 25 years of being a human, 25 years of humanity, but 25 years of a man and woman committed in their hearts to following God and obeying, even when they did not understand and know where they were going. Finally, God's time came, and the promised child Isaac was born. And Isaac, his child literally means he will laugh or he will rejoice. It was their time of laughter. It was their time of rejoicing. 25 years is a long time to wait on a promise. Finally, it comes, and they're so filled with joy and laughter and happiness that God has done this thing that was impossible. But God was not done with his commands for Abram. He then was called Abraham because God had promised him to be the father of many nations. So in verse 22, it says, It came to pass after these things, that God did tempt Abraham. The word for tempt there actually means to try. God tried Abraham. I would think that he had been tried enough for waiting for 25 years. But God sees things differently than we do. And God did tempt or try Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, behold, here I am. And he said, take now thy son, Thine only son, say only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. I do not like these scriptures. <laughs> they are confusing to us at most, at best. They're like, what, what are you saying, God? What's going on here? The faithful God who finally delivered on his promise has now asked something unheard of from Yahweh God. You see, in the culture surrounding them, the barbaric people, child sacrifice was actually a very normal occurrence. This is something that the other false gods demanded because they're not really gods at all. But it was rooted in Satanism and it was rooted in false worship. And so 
sacrificing children was something that they did to their God. But Yahweh God, he was different. He didn't require this. And so I can only imagine the confusion that Abraham was facing as he's like, God, what, what are you saying? And God, look at his emphasis. He says, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac. Oh, by the way, whom thou lovest. That one, that promised child. Take him and sacrifice him upon the altar of the, one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Once again, God gives a directive to Abraham and says, go do this, and I'm going to tell you where to go when you start. He had this way with Abraham that he said, start walking, start doing, but I'm never telling you your final destination. Always this trying of Abraham's faith. So I can imagine that Abraham must have been very, very confused by this God that he thought he knew. What was God doing? Have you ever been in that place where you sit and you stare at something and you go, God, I do not understand what you are doing right now. It's that same question we often ask ourselves when God doesn't do something that we understand. What is God doing? The question I have no doubt that Job asked himself when God didn't make any sense to him. God, I've been so faithful to you. God, I've stood for your promises. God, I've been waiting for 25 years. What are you doing? I do not get you right now, Lord. Why would you ask this? This makes no sense. This is in complete contradiction to who I thought you were. I thought you were a good God. I thought you cared about me. I thought you loved me. Real questions. And if you've served God for any length of time, you've asked yourself these questions. You come to your own time of tempting or testing, as the Bible really means. Your own time of testing. And your mind asks you these questions. So we know the end of Abraham's story. It's beautiful. We're like, oh, he just had to trust God. It's so great that we get the Bible because we get to see the end of all these people's stories. It's like, great, just go a couple chapters. Look what God does. But we're in the middle of our stories. It's a lot harder to trust in the middle. So why would God ask for his child, his only child, in such a barbaric and terrible way? But it was simply a test for Abraham. And you might be right in the middle of your what is God doing moment. Why are you asking me this thing, God? Why are you wanting this of me? And Abraham must have thought, this is in complete contradiction to your promise. Because in, the Bible literally says in 22 and 2, and he said, take now thy son, thine only son, Isaac, whom thou lovest. Notice the detail and inflection of these words. Thy son. Thine only son. Oh, and by the way, he's the one you really, really love. Take him. Take your promise. Take your future. Take everything that I have said I would give to you. And go sacrifice it. That means you're going to kill it. Say bye. This was the moment that once again, God told Abraham to go, but with no specific time, no specific location, no specific place. Just said, on a mountain, what I'm going to tell you about. Genesis 21 and 3, and Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, 
and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. So Abraham prepares what he needs and without delay begins his journey of obedience. He rose up the next morning. For three days, 50 miles of travel on foot and on some donkeys, as it specifies. Three days. Imagine what went on in his head for three days. Three days of questions. Three days of glancing over at your child and wondering why God was asking this thing of you. Three days to reconcile yourself to the fact that God promised you something and it looked like it was, he wasn't going to be true to his promise. I find it so interesting that it was three days of feeling like your promise had died just like God eventually, Jesus eventually did with his disciples. Three days when they thought their promise was dead. Their entire future was dead. Three days of questions. Three days of God, why have you done this? I thought you were so powerful and so big. So Genesis 22.4 says, Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. So what was about to take place, look at how Abraham describes it. He says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship. Everybody say worship. Worship. I wonder how long Abraham took to decide what he was going to say in that moment. Because he know the, knew the moment was going to come, and he knew he needed to leave the other two men at the base of the mountain, and he knew he needed to give an explanation of what was about to take place. So for three days, I'm sure he went through all of the ways that he would say it. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm, I'm going to go up the mountain, and I'm going to kill my son. How was he going to word what God was asking of him? But even in his words, you know, there's so much power in our words. In the words that he spoke, he spoke something he had birthed deep inside of himself. He spoke faith in that moment. He says, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. So what was about to take place, Abraham described as worship. It looked like a terrible trial. It seemed like a horrible sacrifice. It appeared that God was failing you, Abraham. Worship? How is this worship? But you see, the God Abraham knew was a God of sacrifice. Abraham is the only man described in the Bible as a friend of God. Abraham knew and was in covenant with this God of sacrifice. He had regularly killed animals and sacrificed in worship unto God. He had gone through circumcision at the command of God at an older age. Does that sound like fun? <laughs> that was a sacrifice. There's no anesthetist during that time. That was a sacrifice. That was a painful experience. God and Abraham, they had a relationship of sacrifice. That was covenant to them. So the last 25 years of Abraham's life had been lived in that sacrifice, leaving family. God says, go. Abraham says, I'm going to leave everything I've ever known, and I'm going to do what God tells me to do. Living in a tent 
Now, I know tents were common in that time, but Abraham came from a city. He probably had a home. And he went and wandered around in the wilderness for 25-plus years at the command of God. At this time, he'd probably been in the wilderness for 40-plus years. Living in a tent, wandering around, following God's command. He knew a bit about sacrifice. God had made him, through this sacrifice, one of the wealthiest men alive at that time. He had blessed him financially, and he had promised him a heritage beyond the stars of the sky. Because you see, you can never sacrifice and have God not see and reward you for that sacrifice. So even though he was living in tents, God was just pouring his blessing on him, pouring his blessing on that sacrifice. And it was with this understanding of the nature of God that Abraham walked up to that mountain and with an assurance in the God that he served, he boldly declared that he and the lad were going to worship. And he says, we will come again to you. Somehow, in some way, Abraham trusted that his God would continue to be faithful and honor sacrifice. He knew that whatever he may offer and worshiped unto God, God was going to return that. He didn't understand how. He didn't understand the way. But he knew that the God that he served had always honored his sacrifice. And the word for worship here is from the root word meaning to bow down or to pay homage, to humble ourselves. It is in his understanding of sacrifice and humility that he knew, God, I didn't do anything to earn this child. I didn't do anything to earn your blessings. All I have done is done what you've told me to do and walked in obedience to you. And you are the one that has provided me with all of these things. He had such an understanding of God as his provider. And so he could confidently say, we are going to worship. He was about to kill his promise. But he had a confidence in his soul that said, if I kill it, I don't know. God's going to bring it back. God's going to return it to me. God is going to be faithful to me because he always had been. He knew a faithful God. Let's just thank him right now for his faithfulness. Jesus, we thank you so much. God, you have been so faithful to us, Lord. So faithful in all your ways, God. We thank you this morning for your faithfulness to us. So he would confidently say, we are going to worship. You know, commentaries don't give an exact age for Isaac at this time. But range from about 13 years old to 25 years old. A lot of times pictures depict a little child on the altar. But it was not a child based on timeline. He was old enough to know what was going on, old enough to carry the wood for the offering on his shoulders. It says that Abraham put the wood on his shoulders, once again pointing to Jesus, that Jesus carried the wood upon his back. So many parallels to what Jesus did. He was old enough to know what was going on. He was old enough to know that they were missing something in this sacrifice, and possibly even old enough to realize what was about to happen. Because you see, Genesis 22 and 7 says, And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father, and said, Behold, my father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood. You got the fire. I'm carrying the wood. You've got the knife. But 
where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Moses, or not Moses, and uh, Abraham says, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. Once again, a very prophetic word that says, my son, God is going to ultimately become that lamb. Being a friend of God, I believe that Abraham understood much more about who God really was than sometimes we even give him credit for. He said God is going to provide himself. I believe that Abraham understood that God has provided me with this son. So if this is the son he has provided for that lamb, so be it. Or he'll provide another lamb. I don't know. Abraham did not know what God was up to. He didn't know the end of the story. But the words that he spoke spoke that he had a confidence and a trust in a God. He spoke confidence even when he did not understand. So he says, behold the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, God will provide a lamb, himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them together. He had so fully learned to trust in the provision of God that he trusted him with not only what was material, but what was eternal. Sometimes we have an easy time trusting God with material things. And I, I shouldn't say we have an easy time, but we have an easier time. We can say, oh God, you know, I believe you're going to provide this for me. But when it comes to our children, we have a much harder time relinquishing that. Oh, no, no, no. This is a person. This really matters. This isn't a small little thing. It's not a bill that I need to pay. I mean, this is a soul. I was at a ladies' conference um, in March. It was a minister's wife's retreat. And Sister Hildebrand was speaking. She's a pastor's wife in Wisconsin. And she said something that just got into my spirit because it impacted me so much. She said she has two girls. And she was in a season with her daughters where they were just... She was concerned. <laughs> she was concerned for her children, which if you're a mom, you know that feeling like, oh, God, I'm so concerned. I just want my kids to serve you. I want my kids to do this. I want them to be well. She was so concerned for her children. And she said, and I told God, God, when I dedicated my children to the Lord, I gave them to you. And she said, and I absolutely refuse to take them away now. God, these are yours. I gave them to you. I've done the best that I could, but I will not take them out of your hands now. They are yours, Lord. And I believe that Abraham had that idea in his mind about his children because he knew exactly where they came from. They came from a promise. They came directly from the Lord. They were a, he, Isaac was a living miracle. Not many hundred-year-old ladies I know, know are getting pregnant these days. Poor girl. <laughs> <laughs> Pregnancy is hard enough when you're young. Oh, Lord. I can't even imagine. Oh, Jesus. But he was a miracle. He was a miracle child. And Abraham said, I will not take him out of your hand. Perhaps the biggest revelation of the character of God and the character of Abraham is found in this story. So Abraham had fully learned to trust the provision of God. And there they go. And they are walking up that mountain to worship. Now, just because it's going to be a funny parallel, um, let's have 
my favorite bass player in the whole world, and his father come on up. <laughs> Could you help me with an illustration? <laughs> He's like, no, <laughs> why did she do this to me? But Abraham was an older man. Not saying Keith is old. <laughs> It's just funny because he's taller than you. That's what I'm trying to get at. So he very well, Abraham very well could have been outsized by his child. So they're going up the mountain, and Nathan, you're carrying all the wood. Nathan's carrying the wood. You're going up the mountain. Just go up the mountain. It's just a good illustration, going up the mountain. Nathan's saying, Dad, we're missing something. <laughs> but God is about to provide himself a burnt, or a burnt offering, a lamb for a sacrifice. So they walked up that mountain. Just keep walking. They walked to worship. Because you see, the way that your children view worship is the way that you view worship. And perhaps the biggest revelation of the character of Abraham can be found in this passage because you see, Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born. He was an older man, even with longer lifespans that they had during these times. He was not in the prime of his life. He was now between 113 and 125 years. I'm sorry, Keith. <laughs> but Isaac... <laughs> Isaac is a young and healthy man. <laughs> you guys can stop. Thank you. They did fabulous. Now with them in your mind, think of this. We find that Isaac allowed his father to bind him up and place him upon the altar. It was not a child. This was an adolescent to a 25-year-old man who was possibly larger than his father. Abraham was not in the prime of his life. But Isaac had sacrificed with his father enough to know what was coming. Abraham had passed along his faith so beautifully to his child that Isaac knew that sacrifice and worship required faith and that they went hand in hand. I'm sure that Isaac had never experienced this so clearly in all of his life. Perhaps Isaac laid himself upon that altar. And then his father bound his hands and feet. Because I can't see a 125-year-old man lifting a grown man onto an altar. He was sacrificing. And he had taught his child something about worship. I don't know what Isaac's faith looked like in that moment. Was he afraid? I'm sure he was. Did he believe that God would raise him from the dead? What did he think sitting there upon that altar? Sacrifice. Worship. What I do know is that Isaac would be the patriarch of the Jewish people, God's people. And in that moment, his faith too was tested. This is not just a story about Abraham. We often talk about Abraham, and Abraham was a mighty man of faith. But how do you think that Isaac became who he was? The faith was passed from one generation 
to another generation. It was passed by example. It was passed by sacrifice. It was passed with a child who realized that God required sacrifice in worship and that God had always been faithful. So he lay there, not knowing what was about to happen, in worship. He was about to have a very real experience of God's faithfulness in his own life. You know, some of the things that we face as parents, they might not be for you. It might be for your children to grow their faith, to make them become the people that they are. So he lay there. And it says, and Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. God took him to the very brink of his test. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. I can imagine his feeling. And he said, here am I. Oh, God. And the angel said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him, caught in a, er, behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh, the relief that he must have felt. Oh, God. The very brink of the moment you took me to, but then you provided, just like you've always provided. The relief must have been so tangible. The sacrifice that was tearing their hearts out turned into a beautiful thing provided by God. The faithfulness and the character of God revealed once again. And in the verses to come, God starts pouring more blessing out upon Abraham and Isaac because they obeyed and they sacrificed Again, And so God rewarded them, just pouring more blessing out, pouring more blessing out. If you're looking for the blessings of God on your life, try some sacrifice. God always sees it. I remember hearing once, and it stuck with me all my life, but hearing if something that you're doing causes you to feel it, like, oh, that's a sacrifice, you can be sure that God sees it. Because God honors sacrifice. So we know the end of this story. More blessing upon Abraham and Isaac. Beautiful faithfulness of God. Isaac's faith is built. Abraham's faith is built. It's beautiful. But we don't know the end of our story. What will our response to sacrifice be? When God asks something of me that I do not understand, something that hurts, something that costs me something, the way I respond is going to be teaching my children what worship really looks like. No child ever wants to serve God when they see a parent who jumps and shouts on Sunday, but whose lifestyle isn't made up of consecration from day to day. I loved Jackson's response today because Jackson is a child that does not like conflict. And so he feels loved in the fact that his mother does not raise her voice at him. If he's at my house and I get a little stern with my kids, he finds a place to get away from me. <laughs> he does not like it. But he feels that love because he has a mother who lives a life in front of him that shows him day to day, this is how we serve God. True worship can come from a heart committed to trusting in the faithfulness of God. So what is our response when God asks something of us that hurts? 
Do we push it aside and ignore it? Do we become angry at this God that would ask us to sacrifice something? Or do we humble ourselves and counting the costs say, okay, God, this is what you wanted me. This is going to cost me something. And this is what worship really is. Worship is not a song that we get up and perform for you while you stare at us and think, yeah, the temple's not quite right today. <laughs> Has a little off. Man, that, that alto, whoo, she needs to learn her part better. That's not what worship is. If your hands are not in the air and you are not talking to God, you are not worshiping. You are not actively engaging because our worship is a sacrifice of praise unto our God. It is not a, re a listening And musicians, you can come. I'm almost done. But you see, how you worship your God will determine how your children worship God. Is he a God that's worthy of sacrifice to you? Do you trust him with the most valuable things in your life? Would you be willing to sacrifice those things? And I'm not talking about children because that was not the, the character and the nature of God. That was a test for a moment for one individual. God's will was never for them to sacrifice their children, and he proved that. But in essence, he was asking, do we really believe that God alone is our provider? Would, he be, would we be willing to give him whatever he asked of us? You know, we struggle to give God our finances because in truth, perhaps we don't fully understand who our provision really comes from. So, oh God, if I, whoo, if I give this to you, you know, I'm not going to have enough. When in reality, God's going, how much can you give me so I can prove how faithful I am? And if you've been through the campaign, so many of us, we have testimonies of what God has done for us through that season of sacrifice. So thankful. But do we really believe that he alone is our provider? Because you are showing your children what true worship looks like. You know, as you minister Abraham was going up that mountain, and he was going to sacrifice. He was going to minister unto God. But he never was called to actually sacrifice his child. You're not called to sacrifice your children on an altar of ministry or on an altar of your career. You're called to bring your child with you to worship. And I love that illustration because... That is what we do as parents. So we're very active in a district, and one of the things that we have seen is, is ministry families that we look at them and their kids are strong and serving and loving God, and we have sought to follow in their example. And what I always find is that these families, they don't go to camp meeting and leave their kids at home. They don't go to church and leave their kids at home. They don't go to special services or ministry-related things and leave their kids. They take them with them because they understand, I'm teaching you. I'm teaching you to worship. You're coming with me because I'm teaching you something about the nature and the character of God. Next week, we're going to a double service format. And I would encourage you, I would encourage you to be here as often as you can. Even though it's the same songs and the same message, you know, our God is worthy of praise every time. Even if we sing the same songs. 
we sang the same songs for every service for the rest of this year, I would hope that we love God enough that we could worship God, not because of the song, but because he's worthy. And so there's going to be times that you're going to be sacrificing to minister, to be at a Saturday night and a Sunday morning. Can I tell you that the way that you speak about that sacrifice of worship and the way that you respond to it, that's how your children will. You want to teach them how to worship? You show them how to properly respond to sacrifice. Know that the way that I view and I speak of sacrifice and worship unto God will be the way that my children view and speak of sacrifice and worship. You know, we host small groups in our home every single quarter. And I'm going to tell you something. Sometimes I don't want to. I don't want to clean my house. And I love everybody in my small group. Understand. But I don't want to clean my house. I don't want to vacuum the floors. I don't want to clean the toilet because we do, you know. I don't want to make some food, smile, talk, engage, give away an entire evening of my life. Sometimes I, I, I don't want to. But you know, my kids have never heard me say that until this moment. And you know why? Because it's worship that I give to my God. It's a sacrifice, but it's for the benefit of somebody else, not just me. It's a sacrifice that I say, God, here is this evening. Here is what I'm doing. Here is all these things I'm giving to you. And I'm giving them as a sacrifice of worship. And I'm teaching my children to worship and sacrifice. The next few years are uncharted territory for us. Perhaps we will be switching to afternoons on Sunday at some point if we sell our facility. And guess what? You might not like it. Perhaps we will learn who values the presence of God over the entertainment of football. And I like football. Perhaps we will see who comes to church because it's convenient and who comes as a sacrifice of worship. The Bible says that we're to bring a sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. It should cost us something. It shouldn't just be convenient and easy all the time. Perhaps we'll be sacrificing more in the giving to our new building so that we could go in debt free. Do we believe that God returns our sacrifice or don't we? Perhaps we'll need to do things in ways that we have never done them before and it will require greater flexibility from us. Guess what? This isn't about me and it's not about you. It's about trusting that our God is our provider and that he's going to honor whatever sacrifice that we bring unto him. Perhaps our sacrifice of teaching our children what it looks like to be inconvenienced is going to lead to the next generation of great outpouring and revival in our nation. Perhaps our sacrifice is showing them the way to worship. So today, you know, we call these altars. And I find that so fitting because an altar was a place where they sacrificed and they laid down something. And God told Abraham to get up and to go to the altar. And I know we don't have a ton of altar space, but I think there's something to be said about getting up and going out of your seat somewhere that says, God, I'm stepping out in consecration. I'm stepping out to lay something at the altar. 
In the Old Testament, when they sacrificed, there were horns on the altar because they had to take that sacrifice live and screaming, probably. I try to cut my dog's nails. He screams like he's dying just from trying to hold it down and cut it. Imagine trying to tie something to that sacrifice, to that altar. And I think sometimes that's what we need to do. We need to get ourselves and we need to tie ourselves to that altar. We need to say, God, I'm going kicking and screaming with my flesh. But my spirit says, I trust my God will be faithful to me. So let's stand today. And let's get out of our seats. Even if there's not enough room at the altar, get out of your seat and make a different place an altar to show I am responding to that word. God, this might cost me something, but I know that what I offer to you in worship and sacrifice, God, I'm teaching my children, I'm training somebody to respond to you in worship. Lord, I'm teaching my flesh what it means to sacrifice, what it means to trust you as my provider, to trust you as my provision. God, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to come the way that you want me to come, God. Oh, Jesus, in my sacrifice of praise might be a sweet smell to you, Lord. God, that I might bring a sacrifice that is beautiful unto you that I might trust in your provision, oh Lord, that I might trust, oh God, in your way and your plan. Help me, Jesus, to trust you above my own flesh, above what is convenient for me, oh God, to willingly lay something upon the altar and give you something that brings you pleasure, something, God, that shows you that I trust you above and beyond every human thing, every human desire. Lord, that I trust you are my provider, that I trust you are my provision.